Happy Monday, listeners. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is... Andy Alexander. It's nice to see you, Andy. Can you tell us about the amazing interview we have today with one of the RSP's co-founders, David Robertson? Yeah, absolutely. It was such a treat getting to talk with him, given who he is for our podcast. We had this great conversation about the category of conspiracy theories and how it is often understood and employed both in the academy and in public discourses, particularly with regard to social governance. And David demonstrates how conspiracy theories, whether as an idea, something specific we're talking about, or as a category, are often dismissed. But as you'll hear, these discourses around conspiracy theories are extremely intertwined with so many aspects of our social worlds. So it was just a great and very thought-provoking conversation. I can't wait. Let's listen in. Hi, I'm Andy Alexander, and I am very pleased to be joined here today by David Robertson, who is one of the co-founders of the Religious Studies Project. Though, I must say, I feel like you should be the one doing this, and I should be on the other side, but I am really excited that you're here, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be back. Yes, I have really been looking forward to our conversation because today we are talking about conspiracy theories and religion. Now, you've been doing work on these issues for a while now, but there certainly does seem to be a bit of an uptick in interest around some of these topics. I wonder if you would just tell us a little bit about your own experience in working on these topics and these discussions within the field of religious studies. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as you say, this is something that quite suddenly people are very, very interested in. There's an enormous amount of material about religion and conspiracy theories. But, you know, I've been working on this stuff since, I think, 2009, 2010 anyway. And back then was far less support for for this kind of work people really struggled to see why it was of any interest or import back then i remember one of my supervisors on my undergraduate thesis being quite angry that i was granting this stuff um you know legitimacy by covering it at all and luckily a, a third supervisor then stepped in and uh, agreed that it was worth looking at but my my first academic presentation i think well, i think i was in i think i was maybe still a master's student or a phd student was at the BASR conference in 2011 in chester and i was in the the last panel of the entire thing, which was like a random grab bag of papers that didn't fit anywhere else in the conference, as is usually the case with me. And I was talking about UFO conspiracy theories, so a, a very, very early version of what would end up being my thesis and first book. And towards the end of the paper, I raised the point of that this was material that had a long kind of history way back to the 40s and the 1960s and but wasn't something that scholars really were taking at all seriously at which point the chair 
of the panel, who's quite a senior scholar, interjected jokingly, oh, that's because these people are crazy. And, you know, we all we all laughed. And um, I'm forever grateful that I had the wherewithal in the moment to respond with, I'm a, I'm a religious studies scholar. I don't evaluate truth claims. <laughs> nice. Which, which, yeah, I was quite pleased that I came out with that. It was the adrenaline, I think. <laughs> but nonetheless, it, it sort of set me thinking that you wouldn't have got an interjection like that in any other panel in the conference. I mean, there was papers on spiritualism and Scientology and shamanic practices and animism and, you know, indigenous worldviews where stones and rocks and animals are persons and relationships with invisible beings or worldviews in which bread miraculously turns into human flesh. None of those elicited a response about whether the beliefs were rational or not. And it, it really set me thinking, actually, about... Well, about the category religion and the category conspiracy theories as kind of markers of how we think about belief, how we think about knowledge, and about how these categories operate to classify worldviews in different ways. Which is to say that the studying the relationship between religion and conspiracy theories both as they're used by people, but also as they're employed as analytic categories, really isn't a marginal thing at all. It actually cuts right to some of the central questions and issues of what we do in the study of religion and, and what the study of religion is for and where the study of religion is heading. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really fantastic example of how certain ideas and beliefs are accepted and legitimated while others are dismissed or regarded as crazy. And from what I gather, that's a, that is a pretty common approach to the discourses around these categories. Could you talk a little bit more about how the category of religion and the category of conspiracy theory is commonly understood within the academy? Yeah, so, okay, Russell McCutcheon has a few times quipped that the religion and X market is completely unregulated. And so when we talk, we're talking about religion and conspiracy theories, there's really three different things we can mean by that. We can talk about religion as conspiracy theories, so we can talk about structural and functional uh, similarities and differences between the two ca uh, categories. We can talk about conspiracy theories in religions, so how different religious groups use conspiracy theories or appeal to conspiracy theories in different ways. And there's a number of interesting functions that actually tell us quite a lot about the appeal of conspiracy theories in, in wider society. And then finally, we can talk about conspiracy theories about religions um, or about religion in, in a larger sense. And in fact, some of the bigger questions, you know, a lot of the current interest in religion and conspiracy theories is actually that latter, you know, in terms of is QAnon a cult or 
Trump followers? Um, is it a religion with a charismatic leader and so on and so forth? So maybe maybe we will I'll try and end there and I'll jump back to the idea of religion as conspiracy theories. So uh, some of the bigger com- comparative points. Yeah. So the idea that there is some similarity between conspiracy thinking and religious thought has been there since the the very beginnings of the category. So the very first mention of it's in Karl Popper's, uh, I think it was 1947, The Open Society and Its Enemies, and he he talks about the conspiracy theory of uh, conspiracy theory of history is what he talks about. He immediately talks about religion. And conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory is being a sort of secularized version of a religious view of history in which there are hidden agents operating behind the scenes. You know, he's not really talking about conspiracy theory in the, in the modern sense, however. But um, Richard Hofstadter, his 1964 article, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, again, he's making connections between the paranoid style, which is essentially what we think of as as the conspiratorial mode of politics now. And, you know, he uses terms like a Manichaean worldview. He's connecting it with um, ideologies. And interestingly, the group he focuses most on as an example of the paranoid style is the John Birch Society, who were certainly right wing, but it was also a very evangelical christian traditionalist kind of that you know that 1950s model of right-wing christian yeah um american americanness um (laughs) so he you know he is associating uh conspiracy theories with ideological extremism and particularly a sort of uh religious drive there so this model of conspiracy theories as being a sort of secularized religious thought is there from the very beginning. Nowadays, the comparison is much more often made between conspiracy theories and cults. Right. Right. Now, as we both know, and hopefully the listeners know by now, a cult is simply an illegitimate religion. And so there is this sense in which conspiracy theories are viewed as a secular replacement for religion you know a grand explanatory framework that somehow replaces religion but is far less legitimate than religious belief is right um it 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 doesn't have you know it's never referred to as faith for a start it's always referred to as beliefs or quasi-religion cult thinking group think all of these negative connotations about you know organized religion and this is something which both supporters and critics appeal to all the time. It it does things like it it places the conspiratorial believer in the center of history. You know, they have they have a knowledge and understanding of the real meaning of history and the real direction of history um in ways that the unenlightened don't. Right. This this is the this is the sort of uh big sociological model anyway that that views religion and conspiracy theories as, as somehow related of course there are other there are other scholars who approach conspiracy theory and religion quite differently and just directly 
don't make the comparison, quite deliberately so. For instance, if you look at psycholo- most psychological studies of conspiracy theories, of which there have been many, many over the last 20 years or so, quite consciously don't make connections between conspiratorial thinking and religious thinking, because they are almost all starting from the position of that this is a problem. This is something that we need to solve. Now, if you bring in religious ideas, then this complicates everything, right? Because if your argument is conspiracy theory is a deficit of thinking, right? So either you're, you know, you've got a low level of schizophrenia or you're paranoid or you're irrational or you're brainwashed or you are just, you just don't think very clearly. Then if you then bring in something that 80% of Americans accede to, then you're really complicating things, aren't you? If the problem is irrational thought, that we shouldn't allow people to spread ideas that don't stand up to scientific standards of verification, then for God's sake, don't mention the fact that that also applies to these other beliefs, which are what the country trusts in and 80% of them agree with, because you're going to upset a lot of them. And you're going to bring in all sort of constitutional problems about why certain uh, forms of irrational belief are okay and other ones aren't. <laughs> so this is a core tension in this model, whether yeah. you're coming from a sociological point of view or, a, you know, a, a more critical point of view. Yeah. Based on what you're saying, I mean, especially for religious studies, it seems that it would be worthwhile to examine the overlap in in these categories because in dismissing conspiracy theories in this way like you've discussed could actually kind of have some negative implications for the study of religion it would seem Absolutely. But that would assume that most scholars in religious studies are interested in deconstructing the category. And I don't think that's the case. There is that. Um, I suspect that, I strongly suspect that most people in this field are caretakers rather than critics. Yes. Um, You've also got to think about who's funding most work. Uh, Most work that gets most research that gets funded in religious studies is hoping to show some positive aspect to religion. Right. Um, Whereas most research that gets funded on conspiracy theories is being funded by a completely different group of people who see it as a security threat. Um, And so, you know, never the twain shall meet. I'm, um, you know, muddying the waters for both of those groups. And that's why none of them ever give me any money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can see that. You're, phrasing there and i think the idea of threat especially is central to the divide between these two categories for me it it brings to mind naomi goldenberg's idea of religion as vestigial states where she argues that religion functions like a vestigial state a, a former institutional power that is permitted within the contemporary nation-state, so long as it doesn't threaten or challenge the existence or authority or identity of that state. But unlike religion, conspiracy theories aren't granted that type of limited autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. They 
don't have the same sort of identity representation kind of function. But it's interesting. I mean, there there is there is no discussion going on in the field of conspiracy studies as to whether one needs to be a conspiracy theorist to understand conspiracy theories. There are no scholars, maybe one that I'm aware of in the field of conspiracy theory studies who self-identifies as a conspiracy theorist. Um, there, you know, it's, it, it is, it is so telling about the field of religious studies when you compare the two and, and what they're doing. You don't go to religious studies conferences which in which the title of the conference has problem in the title, you know, the problem of religion or, right. or ta- tackling religion or anything like that, you know. Um, it's, it, it, it's telling, I think. Yeah, I, I've certainly never come across a panel featuring a Q representative, for example, as an authority on Q drops and there to inform the academic community about these updates, right? No, but you regularly get um, you you regularly get events on religion, not so much in religious studies, but you know public events where mm. we have a conference about religion, and our speakers are the leaders of various groups, and you know you you're not going to get that on any mainstream media outlets the 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 function of the discourse on religion and the discourse on conspiracy theories goes much much wider than simply our disciplines and that's part of Mm. the problem and conspiracy theory is actually it's it's like the category of religion in that sense in that it has that function it just doesn't have the longer history of of being representing these various vestigial groups and so on but it serves a very similar function that is is sustained by its usefulness in governance not by its analytical usefulness which is why as scholars i feel that it's massively important and sad that i don't see much of it that we need to be actually deconstructing the categories and their functions in society at large because otherwise we're simply reinforcing them and perpetuating them absolutely i think this is key for beginning to understand the discrepancy and how certain ideas are understood as or accepted as factual as perhaps descriptive and others are what was it in that panel just dismissed as crazy without a second thought yeah exactly and i think that you are absolutely right about the necessity of deconstructing these categories because in this process we can come to understand how something like belief has been legitimated and authorized as a religion, whereas conspiracy theories have not been given that same level of authority or legitimacy in our societies. And when we start thinking about the social and political implications of these categories, we're then able to examine the even more implicit modes of knowledge production within our social worlds. Right. And these arbitrary decisions about knowledge uh, and belief is 
embedded into the the linguistic structures we use. It's all the way through society. I mean, even to talk about belief or faith over, say, knowledge is part of a colonial approach to legitimizing certain types of understanding the world and delegitimizing others. I mean, I was often confused as to why my lecturers would constantly talk about when they were talking about indigenous religions and they would talk about people's beliefs. And, and I always thought, well, why are you describing theirs as beliefs and ours as knowledge? Why is, why is that different? But, and then you have faith, of course, which is just a, a special kind of belief that only, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Christians are allowed to see to. And then you get things like in law, there was a case recently in Scottish law where um, a person was basically, they were fired by their boss for being a political activist for Scottish nationalism. And he took them to court on the basis that it counted, because it was a sincere belief, this meant that it fell under the law of protecting his freedom of speech as uh, in under religious law. Mm-hmm. So because it was a sincere, a sincerely held belief, and this is, this is a line in law, yeah. that this meant it deserved the same protections as religions did. Now, sincerely held is first of all it's arbitrary and secondly like (laughs) where where do you how do you quantify that but 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 why is it's sincerely held because it's it's uh it's a way of saying faith without using distinctly religious language right yeah um but even when we talk about people's beliefs you know we're we're ignoring the fact that people very few people separate beliefs and knowledge. We might talk about something scientific as being knowledge rather than belief, but I don't understand. I couldn't make a, a light switch work. I'm not using scientific knowledge when I when I do that. I believe it'll turn on because it, I was told it would, and then it did. It usually um, does, yeah. yeah. It's all just forms of knowledge and yeah, I can't remember where we started with this now. I've <laughs> gone yeah, no, uh, the sincerely held belief. No, this is because that is just that rhetoric is just a way of naturalizing certain understandings of religion and maintaining the element of the unique. Right? Because religion in this sense is understood to be distinct and private to the individual, which is key in how it functions. It's individual and it's unique and irreductible, but it's also socially mandated. There is, or even possibly supernaturally mandated, depending on how you think (laughs) about it. There's a, there's a really good example. The, the DSM, you know, the Psychological Manual of the American Psychological Association, the current edition of that, DSM-10, in the section on... Now, if, I, if I've got this, I've, I've got this wrong, I apologise in advance to anyone. I think it's in the schizophrenia section. That, so if someone is suffering from hallucinations and having visions, basically, if they can get agreement from a representative of a recognized religious tradition, that's the wording in it, then those are not taken as evidence of mental illness. If you can't get an official of a legally recognized religious tradition to 
agree, then you, they are evidence of mental illness, wow. right? Yeah. Paging Dr. Foucault. <laughs> yeah. This is, so that idea of, of uh, is something uh, a religious belief or mental illness is, you know, it's right there in how we medically diagnose mental illnesses. And, you know, and conspiracy theory is, is, a, is a, a perfect example of that. So these, these uh, newspaper stories that are saying, you know, are Trump followers in a cult are doing exactly the same thing. They use cult because they they don't want to say, oh, it's a religion. There are actually there there are there are a few reports that talk about you know is Q becoming a religion and things like that. But um, by and large, the discourse is about cult thinking on both sides. That uh, that the conspiracy theories are a descent into sort of barbarous and illegitimate religious groupthink. Right. Right. You know, you're mentioning how they how people don't want to necessarily equate Trump followers with religion and instead want to emphasize this as some type of cult mentality reminded me of something that I've seen a lot in Alabama leading up to the 2020 presidential election that I would occasionally see political yard signs that said Jesus 2020. And so, of course, I had to Google it, and one day I'll get around to writing that blog post. But I found out that it's from this church in Raymer, Alabama, who quite intentionally made political signs to, as they say, get Jesus's name out there with everybody else to remind everybody that, as they put it, Jesus is our sovereign leader while also claiming that this was all about Jesus and keeping politics out of it, because at the end of the day, Jesus was something that would unite all of us. Now, all of the many things we could discuss there aside, what I found fascinating, and by fascinating, I mean wholly unsurprising, but fascinating, was how this was not remotely questioned. And whether it is or isn't directly linked to Trump. Obviously, there's speculation there. But at the end of the day, that's something that would not be permitted by any other group, especially any any group designated as a, as a cult. I just thought it was a really fascinating example of much of what you've been saying, right? Which discourses and ideologies are permitted at the table and which ideas, which groups would absolutely be challenged, delegitimized, and shut down for doing the same type of thing. Right. And and it reminds you that in all of these uh, discourses about the role of conspiracy theories in elections or referendums, that these kind of Christian narratives are not treated in the same way as as conspiracy theories are. Um, I I mean, a clear example is the fact that if you are refuse to wear your mask because you think that masks are there to force, you know, uh, depopulation in the West or whatever. Um, then that's a dangerous conspiracy theory and you should be removed from social media and deplatformed. If you 
however, don't wear a mask because God is going to protect you, then this is a religious objection and is protected under the Fourth Amendment as your right uh, as, you know, as an American. But in, in, in practically every uh, secular nation, there are similar laws which protect religious belief, which usually means Christianity or anything that looks enough like Christianity that it is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, always, always the, the Christian he- hegemony is maintained through through all of these moves. Another example uh, that struck me is a lot of the attention that QAnon particularly has got has been of a very sort of debunking nature, you know, um, that clear sort of um, these people are irrational, they don't understand science kind of approach. And one comment that you often come across is the oh these people claim that their concern is with protecting children that the that supposedly these children are getting abducted and yet they haven't managed to protect any children at all i've read this in a number of articles and i always think the same thing well nor have you by pointing it out it seems like a slightly smug point to say they haven't saved anyone when as a journalist, you have the choice to turn your attention on the Catholic Church and the huge scandal about cover-ups over child abuse that's been going on there and is getting very little press attention. Mm-hmm. It's another example of this uh, same hegemony in terms of what gets dealt with, what gets demonized, what gets presented as dangerous when um, a, a sizable powerful organization which is protecting itself is being ignored by journalists which we know has covered up a number of incidents of uh of abuse as opposed to demonizing a few people who's who have genuine concerns albeit completely misplaced yeah if your concern is with doing something to protect children and uh, and in fact protecting society from dangerous people your target should be other than demonizing a few um, misled people. Yeah. No, I, th- I mean, I think you're right. It does come up now and again, but doesn't get nearly the same media coverage as something like QAnon. Right, yeah. I I read far more posts about how um, QAnon people were delusional for thinking that there was child abuse going on than I did uh, the same, you know, about actually exposing what was happening in the Catholic Church and their ongoing attempts to prevent. Well, don't forget, we've only had two states where they've been allowed to investigate. Also that, yeah. Every other, other, every other state is being prevented from doing so or is refusing to do so for religious reasons. Again, none of this is getting any, is getting any attention. That reminds me a, a bit about what you were discussing earlier when you were talking about Hofstadter's arguments about ideological extremism because it seems that you know these views often get far more media attention than say something like the issues with the catholic church largely i suspect that's to avoid threatening the perceived stability of our socio-political frameworks but could you talk a little bit more about the role of the media in 
these discourses? Yeah, remember Hofstadter was writing at a time uh, just coming out of the McCarthy era when there had been very polarised and entrenched positions. Hofstadter was arguing for a for a return to centrist politics, which is, you know, so it's the, the parallels with the modern age are, are clear. And I think Hofstadter was right that this kind of worldview mobilises minorities who might uh, otherwise not have so much political power. I mean, to some degree, there has always been a drive towards sensational and bizarre things. Like People like to, to read that kind of stuff. Most of the critique of the coverage of conspiracy theories and the blame for um, our polarised politics at the moment is very often laid on social media and on you know the internet. But I think it's highly important to note that the traditional outlets of media have a vested interest in suggesting that the problem is with these new upstarts who are destroying their business mm-hmm. model. Um, don't forget that the, Rus- the Russia report, when it was published, actually said the largest threat to American democracy at, at the moment was the press. It was the fact that the press has become owned by a very few number of companies all of which have amplified the rhetoric in their uh, reporting in fewer and fewer political positions. You know, the role of Rupert Murdoch, Mm. for instance, both in the right-wing newspapers in Britain and Fox News here, people like Steve Bannon establishing not only media companies, but also investing in things like Palantir and Cambridge Analytica, things which have deeply destabilized politics and invested a lot of black money into into campaigns. These are a far bigger reason for the polarization and the mainstreaming of these kind of ideas than than social media is. I think that's not to belittle the role of algorithms in amplifying things, for instance, which I think is an important point. But yeah. the other side of the argument never gets stated. So yeah, they, uh, they will report conspiracy theories when it serves their interests. But in terms of a Hofstadter model of um, amplifying entrenched ideologies, absolutely the mainstream media is uh, as much, if not more, to blame. Yeah, um, that, that's a, a really great point. Of course, I have to mention, you know, there's a lot of talk about the media bias and we've now of course, seen the the rise of fake news rhetoric over recent years. On the one hand, sure, there's no such thing as unbiased journalism. But to that end, there's no such thing as unbiased journalism, right? Given what you've discussed about the role of the media, could you speak a little bit about the, this rhetoric of fake news? What's really interesting about fake news I mean, there's nothing new about either disinformation or misinformation. The difference between those two being, you know, whether someone's just wrong or whether they're deliberately lying. Nor is there the kind of traditional news uh, stations, you know, like people like the the BBC have been fined for deliberately misleading or accidentally misleading a number of times in the past. There's nothing that's new about this. What's interesting is the way that different groups are using it to delegitimize each other. And again, of course, traditional newspapers and news outlets who 
have slashed the amount of reporting and error correction that they ever did before um, or have a vested interest in suggesting that things on the internet are full of misinformation and that they are the responsible ones. But what I think is much more interesting is the way that the idea of fake news relates to this idea of post-truth, that we somehow live in an age in which all of a sudden there is no one agreed upon truth. Right. When was it ever the case? I mean, maybe maybe the 12th century in the middle of Europe when everybody, you know, and even then you're still going to encounter Muslims on the edge. of You know, there has never been a time in history. What they mean is that it is the collapse of the authority of a certain group to impose their model of truth and have everybody accept it without challenge. Yeah. Right. There. But as you know, as we've been, as I've banged on about all the way through this, which things are accepted as truth? It's the model of the world of one group. Mm-hmm. Now, the right wing, the cons- conservative, small c conservative ideology is based upon the premise that there is some larger truth that kind of comes before the individual in societies, you know, be that a sort of national interest or a religious motivation or our less well-defined kind of moral framework or whatever, that the role of the individual is to, is to, is to serve that function in society, right? So the idea of there being an absolute truth is intrinsically important to the more conservative and right-leaning political positions and they feel deeply deeply threatened by it it's not a coincidence that the these large media conglomerates that we're talking about are almost all owned by right-wing or Mm center-right individuals and so the idea that there is this one truth their truth of course that is being challenged is deeply concerning as scholars i think though those of us working in a critical paradigm should be quite comfortable with this idea. It gives us an opportunity to analyze the way that different epistemes, worldviews, doxas, whatever term you like to use, mm-hmm. are being mobilized and the way that different forms of knowledge are being mobilized to control power over, over the discourse, right? Sadly, the political situation and the very real threat that people find themselves in, you know, from poverty, um, illness, lots of lots of things at the moment, political, you know, deep instability. People aren't able to take, to you know, to use that at the moment. There are much more pressing concerns, unfortunately. So from the media sphere, we're seeing things moving back. But as scholars, I think this gives us a, a real opportunity to reassess the categories we use, like religion, conspiracy theories, and truth. Oh, I think you are absolutely spot on there. I'm now looking at the time and realizing that we are out of time, if not a little over time. I would love to keep picking your brain on this because this has been just really interesting to talk with you about, but I am afraid we're going to have to go. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been great to talk to you. We appreciate your time here at the Religious Studies Project. If you enjoyed the podcast episode today, we would appreciate your support. If you could head over to patreon.com slash project RS, even a monthly donation for a cup of coffee would go a long way because the Religious Studies Project is powered by caffeine. 
We also appreciate your visits to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com, where we have full transcripts of episodes, responses by other members of the community, and an archive that has nearly 400 episodes for your listening pleasure. If you find that you are in need of a new book as well. Amazon.com has an affiliates program with links from our website. You can shop on Amazon and a small amount of what you purchase will come back to fund our coffers, which makes hosting servers and paying for websites and all kinds of things go around. All that's left to say until next time is thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>